Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a brand new podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of film. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 1993 film Jurassic Park. So, on my notes, I wrote down plot summary, but since this movie's so well-known, do you really want to describe the plot? Well, uh, maybe just briefly, okay. you know, uh, give, the, uh, give, give a little bit of the details. Okay, so... Dr. Grant and Dr. Sattler are archaeologists, mainly looking through, uh, finding dinosaur bones across the world. Mm-hmm. Um, they are contacted by a man named Dr. Hammond, who I believe is also, you know, in some ways yeah, contributing to their fund, right? Yeah, he's a patron. Apparently, he's, <laughs> he's been funding their dig. I think it's in Montana. Yeah, right? Montana. And he basically promises them three more years of funding if they. Uh, if they do what he wants, which is... Takes them to his island where he is, through uh, the means of science, is able to recreate clone dinosaurs and have this dinosaur theme park. And the dinosaurs are all kinds. You have T-Rexes, raptors, you have brontosauruses, all the other ones that I can't think of the names of right now. Yeah. But, and he's just trying to give them their... Give them the, their approval, but he's also doing a test because he's brought his grandchildren there, and they're going to be the primary audience for this theme park to educate kids about dinosaurs. Yes. So. And so, the, unknowing to him, um, Newton is uh, doing some sort of seedy things, stealing the embryos, giving them to this rival group, and he's sort of hacked into the um, computer mainframe and screwing everything up for them. That's when things go wrong, and then you have the raptors and the dino and the T Rexes going wild. And you, you know this story. <laughs> who, has, who hasn't? Who seen hasn't Jurassic seen this Park? particular one or one of the thirty-nine sequels yes. that have come? But uh, yes, so that that's basically it, right? He's he's ba- he's wanting to Hammond is wanting to open up what is essentially some sort of a theme park. It's a bit like a safari park. Except it is actually uh, uh, Jurassic era, era animals and, and dinosaurs that are going to be available for view. So he's got a commercial interest in this. And uh, uh, as we see at the beginning of the film, something goes wrong. And one of the staff members is killed by what turns out to be a velociraptor, right? So the insurance company balks. And the whole thing may come tumbling down if he doesn't get some kind of uh, um, assurances from experts, right? And that's why our three doctors are invited to the island to basically give their imprimatur to the to the project. So we have the two paleontologists, and then we have this third odd guy, the kind of hipster Jeff Goldblum (laughs) character who. For some reason, has been invited, although apparently he's a mathematician and he's into chaos. The chaos theory. theory, Which is nonlinear equations and things like that. Um, I'm not exactly sure how that is directly related, other than through um, uh, the observed... fact that several of the people point out that uh, unpredictability reigns when you're dealing with complex systems and not only are the dinosaurs themselves uh, complex systems 
but the uh, the way they're being generated mm. is a complex system, and they're being fed into a complex <laughs> system, uh, uh, an ecosystem on uh, that island, wherever it happens to be. Um, uh, you're essentially taking very ancient creatures or hybrids of very ancient creatures with more recent creatures, apparently a frog, a West African frog, and you're growing these and then throwing them into this environment. So you get all these warnings from all three of these experts. Have you really thought this through, Dr. Hammond? I mean, you don't quite know what might happen. It's very unpredictable because it's highly complex. As near as I can tell, that's why the Jeff Goldblum character is brought in because he's aware of uh, uh, complexity in mathematical systems. Now, how does that carry over into biological systems? I don't know, but it gives him an, an excuse to say kind of uh, cynically snarky things from time to time throughout the film. Yeah, and what's interesting about this movie, it really is the, the update on the old Frankenstein dilemma of should man play god but we're in frankenstein it's giving life to something that was already dead mainly a human he they are giving life to not humans but uh, dinosaurs and what the, like i said it's an interesting way where they're finding mosquitoes that were preserved in amber so it was at least six thousand years ago when mosquitoes collected the blood from dinosaurs so you have that dinosaur dna and through that dinosaur dna they can recreate these dinosaurs but like they've and they've even tried to do the control as prevent breeding, so they make sure all the dinosaurs are female. But one of the unpredictable things they couldn't predict was because they said they to fill in the lost DNA chains, they brought in West African frogs. But Grant said, "Do you know that some West African frogs can change sex?" And so you can see that you know now you have male and female, so then there will be breeding, and we can see with the Velociraptors, we've seen hatched eggs. So you can see that they have been breeding. And that just brings into something where it has that dinnertime conversation where, you know, uh, Jeff Goldblum, I'm not going to do a Jeff Goldblum impression, but he was, you know, you're so preoccupied with thinking if you could do it, you didn't stop thinking, should we do it? Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Um, Yeah, and that seems to be the general message of the film. Um, should you, once you develop this kind of technology, should you use it? Um, uh, Granted that there are potential benefits for science and uh, the more commercial aspect, the benefits of uh, having a theme park that people can drive through and and, uh, see uh, formerly extinct uh, fauna. Uh, so there are some benefits to it, uh, but the overall message of the film is that uh, um, we are not in a position in terms of our knowledge base to be able to do this and have a reasonable expectation that um, some serious things would go awry. And and. Whether or not that's true, but that that is the message of the film, and and you know it it, it, it there's a related message as well that uh, we shouldn't jump into using relatively new technology too quickly in a way that can have significant impact on the public until we've tested it uh, for a, 
at least a nominal period of time to take account of possible risks. And they don't because they're they're in a they're in a rush to get this thing going. Uh, because even in Hammond's case, although he seems a little more inclined toward the idealistic side, he just wants mm-hmm. to give humanity knowledge and experience of these wonderful creatures. Still, there's there's a side to this guy who he, he's an entrepreneur. He's ready to make some money here. Yeah, and you and, can see in the park when they're hanging out in the dining room, you see Jurassic Park, the, the lunchbox, Jurassic Park, oh, yeah. the T-shirt. Oh, yeah. And it it's makes got you, that logo slapped everywhere. Everywhere, and it makes it does make you think of uh, Mel Brooks. <laughs> it really does. Um, but the, the, the character that's even more inclined in that direction and uh, is is the uh, slimy lawyer guy, mm-hmm. right? I mean, poor lawyers, they're always, they're always kind of... <laughs> portrayed this way in films or not always but often um but that's there it's certainly there i think the one thing is that man is almost too corrupt to hold this power because the one of the things that's like we talked about the summary that causes you know everything to go wrong is you know the character of wayne knight aka newman from seinfeld yeah you know he's has this you know his relationship with this guy named dodson where he's going to steal the embryos and they're going to use it for their own needs, the Dodson and his group. Yeah. And so you're saying that when you have something this powerful, it's just going to be power will corrupt. Even if it won't be Hammond, it will be the people working for him that want to steal that power for themselves and make their own money out of it. Yeah. And you hear you hear Nedry, that's the character. He's a great character, by the way. Well acted. It's a stick, um, stupid. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you see Nedry time and again uh, uh, pointing out what he consider, considers to be an insufficient salary. And that, that is what has pressured him to go uh, offer these embryos on the black market. Um, so you see this, this uh, it's almost impossible to resist this temptation at uh, um, commercial aggrandizement, making money, uh, on this technology because it is obvious to even and especially a five-year-old what potential benefits there are here and potential money-making opportunities you know they they all know kids kids love dinosaurs this is a gold mine yeah because in the dinner time conversation it was jeff goldblum that said you know you saw this and you were sell 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 immediately and you didn't care about the you know the damage or the effects of it yeah right you wanted to rush into production not mm-hmm. not uh making sure to research all the possible ramifications good and bad of what you're doing absolutely yeah and i think um even when he tries to you know get to dr sadler and dr grant and get them on his side they even have their qualms is because one of the things you would when you bring this would this destroy the theory of evolution because you know this this idea of you know animals adapting and you know growing traits to adapt their environment over time you're throwing these animals that are from you know millions of years ago into this completely different time that's going to not only screw them up but all the animals that they're going to be around the non-dinosaurs and yep. that's going to throw in a huge chain there's going to be trouble with adaptability because things from d- places where they should not be are in this time period and they should not be there exactly right and i, I like i like the feature of the film the little episode there that i really liked was uh, when they find the uh uh, uh triceratops it's sick right 
and the um, Laura Dern character, forget her name, Sattler, uh, Sattler um, mentions, you know, uh, have you considered that uh, these creatures may not be adapted at all to a lot of the flora on this island? Because it has, after all, been millions and millions of years since they've been around. And, of course, the plants, uh, at least some of the plants, weren't around at the time they were. So they, they worry about that. It turns out that the creature's sick for another reason, as I recall. Um, but still, the possibility's there. And the question is, uh, one of the ethical questions that, uh, that you pointed out is, is, and it's kind of an odd way to put it because they are not persons, they're not human beings, but it, it, it is a way to uh, frame, frame the question. Is it fair to these cloned creatures that you're putting them in this environment that could be potentially fatal for them? Yeah, and even you're talking about the fauna, because I when the first when they first arrive at Jurassic Park, right before the famous scene where they see the brontosaurus is running around, but she's looking at a certain plant and she says, this plant was extinct millions of years ago. It shouldn't be this. So not even just with the dinosaurs, but you were introducing different plant life. That's going to screw up the whole plant life because then yeah. plants that shouldn't be there, and then if the animals eat that, and if it happens to be poisonous, but they're not aware because this is something they've never seen before, that's going to introduce a whole nother thing even without the dinosaurs. Yeah, and the interesting case with plants, and that that's a great example, and it just happens very quick in the film. Yeah. Uh, plant seeds um, transport themselves. Uh, very often, wind currents can take them across continents or oceans. Sometimes they will float across oceans and end up in other parts. And who knows, maybe one of these very ancient plants will become an invasive species or particularly uh, noxious for uh, animals that eat them. Or You never know, right? And this is one of, the, one of those uh, um, aspects of complexity that uh, these entrepreneurs just simply poo-pooed or decided not to explore. Yeah, and I think not only with this movie, but you can show it with, with all the other Jurassic movies, Jurassic Park movies they've made, it it shows the damages of what you what man what happens when man disrespects nature. In this case, you know, you'll have dinosaurs eating you, you're gonna be under attack. And I think once again, when you disrespect nature like that, with not knowing, you know, messing up their evolution Putting people and putting them in places where they shouldn't be—that's just going, you know. That's that's what it shows when you have the fun attacks and the chase scenes and the dinosaurs eating the blood-sucking lawyer. <laughs> yes, and uh, you know, and we have uh, uh, real-life cases of this all the time. Human activity has uh, drastically changed ecosystems in various ways, and one of the uh, results of this, of course, are extinctions. Uh, human hunting is supposedly uh, one of the primary drivers behind a lot of the loss of megafauna in the Ice Age, right? Or shortly in the Pleistocene, mm -hmm. right? That Pleistocene, that, that era. Um, woolly mammoths, for example. Um, and the question arises in, the, in those kinds of cases. And I'm bringing this up on purpose because... There is actually a project that Harvard University has um, uh, is working on. Um, if you look up, there is a website called uh, Revive and Restore. 
and they're using some of this gene editing technology that were briefly is briefly uh, shown in the film. Uh, there's uh, gene editing uh, technology derived from basically strategies that uh, bacteria use to inure themselves from being attacked uh, by viruses. It's called CRISPR. Let me get it right here. I got it written down. CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing. And it actually allows uh, people to go directly into uh, a DNA molecule, right, and cut out portions or cut out portions and replace it with other base codes or whatever, right? So you're able to do very, especially if that if you have the genome for a species mapped, you're able to go in and edit at specific part parts of that genome to get specific results. They are actually doing this, this group, uh, and they're believe it or not, uh, attempting with an entrepreneur uh, in Russia to to create a place. Get ready for it called Pleistocene Park. <laughs> and it's inside, it's supposed to, they've already got the land. They've already moved a few species uh, from other parts of the world into that land uh, in, in Siberia, which is basically just permafrost. And their idea behind doing this is they think that uh, by doing so, they can affect the global uh, environment in a way that will uh, be positive by basically baking, breaking up the permafrost, which counterintuitively, this is what I've read. <laughs> I mean, from this um, permafrost, once it forms, uh, creates an insulation layer. So what's underneath it actually warms up a bit. And the worry with the permafrost is if it, if it melts too quickly due to climate change, a great deal of CO2 is going to be released very quickly and it will bring on a greenhouse effect and have deleterious consequences. So the, the idea these guys from Harvard have is that they can reintroduce species into that area that had been hunted to extinction or uh, had simply moved out for other reasons. One species is a species of bison they've already moved in. And I forgot what country they moved them from. I, I want to say Denmark, but I'm not sure. Um, so there are already herds of these animals there, but what's very interesting, why they call it Pleistocene Park, is they intend to do something very much like we've seen in Jurassic Park. They are working with a certain species of elephant uh, in Africa with its genome. And with DNA, they have uh, recovered from frozen mammoth bodies. Wow. And the neat thing about this is the science is there. Frozen DNA does not disintegrate at as rapid a rate as DNA that would be in a piece of amber. In real scientific terms, it's kind of a half-life for DNA, 517 years under normal temperatures. So apparently it breaks down. Half of the half of the code breaks down and is basically unreadable after 517 years, and then half of what remains does the same thing in another 517 years. So realistically, after 60 million years, you're not going to have any dino DNA left. So that's pretty much science fiction. It's not the case with the mammoth. The mammoth, because of the frozen nature of these carcasses they have uh, recovered, 
there's a significant portion of that DNA that's still in relatively good shape. And through CRISPR technology, they can insert parts of those into parts of this elephant uh, genetic code. And they have grown cells. They're, in effect, kind of hybrids between the elephant and the mammoth. And their goal, eventually, is to create embryos and then have them brought to term inside the elephants or for a certain period of time inside an elephant. And then they may take them fully to term in artificial wombs. And apparently they've already done research like this with mice, bringing them to term their entire gestation period in an artificial womb. So their idea is to introduce enough of these megafauna, mammoths, maybe saber-toothed tigers if they can find frozen versions of those, to where they will crunch up just by walking around and doing what mammoths do, the permafrost, and allow the freezing temperatures to go actually deeper down into the earth, thus preventing uh, the release, the large-scale release of the CO2. Long story short, once again, though, I think it's interesting because it shows you there's kind of a real-world parallel here to the Jurassic Park story. There's a benefit, uh, potentially global benefit, in the creation of this park, because Siberia obviously is a very large part of the world, right? Um, there is a certain amount of commercial interest because they would fund this, and they are funding it from people that would like to go and do the, you know, the safari park thing and, and look at these things once they're there. Species that have been extinct to various things, like you say, hunting, maybe man caused. That was even brought up in the film mm -hmm. when he bring he's one of Hammond's justification is. Well, the condors are dying out. And if you had wanted to do this to save the condors, wouldn't you do it? And Malcolm's defense is, well, you know, th these were they were wiped out to d deforestation and certain mankind elements. This didn't. This was not the case for the dinosaurs. They had their chance. Evolution wiped them out, or the asteroid, like that. But if let's say it was Condor Park instead of Jurassic Park, would this automatically make it more ethical or like? Because you're not messing the evolutionary cycle. You're yeah. just keeping things that are dying out and giving them new life. Would that be like a more logical choice or ethical choice? Would there be less problems with it if it was a condor? Park? That's a good question. Um, and actually, that is the larger project that this re uh, Revise and Restore uh, organization has. Because they're seriously working on restoring uh, species that were caused to go extinct by human action the tasmanian devil the pa passenger pigeon there's a species of dolphin i cannot recall um, that was fished to extinction so they're seriously working on this kind of thing and i guess if you ask the gold bloom character he he would be more inclined to say uh yeah, it's okay in that case. And probably for at least one reason. In all of those instances, those species uh, went extinct relatively recent, recently in geologic time. So the environment that they were a part of is not all that different than ours mm -hmm. now. Yeah. So the risk for them is less significant in terms of being reintroduced in an, into an alien world. And the risk for the rest of the world is less uh, uh, as well. 
still, you, you could make the case, and he could make the case, the, the, uh, the, the Malcolm character could make the case that um, the complexities are still there, right? So even if the environment that you would be introducing the Tasmanian devil into or the passenger pigeon into is significantly like the one they left, you still, I think, have certain risks you have to take into account. Like maybe the Tasmanian devil would disrupt the predatorial food chain enough to have repercussions on other species that have perhaps taken its place in that environment. Um, you still have to take all that into account, I think, as you as you attempt to do these things. And people that are not doing it for immediate commercial gain would be less inclined to rush things. Maybe scientific researchers, for instance. Um, but it's a it's a very interesting line of questioning, for sure. Mm-hmm. And one of my biggest problems, I would say with their sequels, The Lost World, Jurassic Park 3, Jurassic World, Jurassic World Falling Kingdom, and I think there's a new one coming out in a year or two called Jurassic World Dominion, is the problem is when you watch those movies, it's yeah. just repeating the same problems in the first movie. Yeah. Now, what happens at the end of this movie? They escape the park. Dr. Grant says, you know, somewhat sarcastically, Dr. Hammond, after careful consideration, I you know, disapprove of your park. And Hammond says, I agree. His arc is he realizes that this park should not be made, that mankind, man should not be, be Frankenstein, play God, that too many factors, it just would not work and it shouldn't work. He leaves, he leaves the island alone, it's abandoned. That should have been the end of the franchise as far as I'm concerned, but... Since we're talking about Spielberg, just like Jaws, they had to, because this, this made over a billion dollars, it was the first movie to ever make a billion dollars. Now, I haven't, it's been a long time since I've seen The Lost World, but in that one, Malcolm comes back, Jeff Goldblum, um, and he's trying to, there's this other organization that wants to take some of the, you know, raptors or the dinosaurs for themselves. They capture a, a T-Rex and its newborn child, and they try to bring it to San Diego, and then the, the T-Rex breaks loose and wrecks havoc in San Diego. So once again, it's a whole, mankind should not play God. Okay, we learned that the first movie. You don't really need to do it the second time. Third movie is not, it's more of just like a, like a, Grant's being brought back because this rich family's son was paragliding there and he got, he's stranded there and they have to rescue him. So that one's not really a lesson, just more of a rescue movie. But in Jurassic World... When it came out five years ago, it's set like ten years after, but this time the park has now fully been realized. But then there's there's this corrupt group played by um, Vincent D'Onofrio, a.k.a. Private Pile from Full Metal Jacket. He wants to weaponize the raptors for military weapons. And so what happens, there's a big, they go riled all over the park, and they kill Vincent, they kill Private Pyle, once again realizing man should not play God, man should not meddle in nature, learning the same. And in the last movie, which just came out two years ago, there's more cloning done. It's the, I, I haven't seen this one. This is the one I haven't seen, but from what I heard, there's, it's cloning, and it's somewhat similar to Lost World, where there's another group, I think, once again, for military purposes, trying to create them for weapons. 
but they're also cloning on humans. And I, the big thing that happens at the end is this clone girl who's a clone, she lets the dinosaurs free and run wild in like a big metropolitan area because she says they're just like me. And so that's like the, and so supposedly this new one that's supposed to come out sometime, which they're bringing um, Laura Dern back, they're bringing Sam Neill back, they're bringing Jeff Goldblum back, and they're bringing that character Dotson back, the okay. guy. Yeah. <laughs> they're bringing him back, and it's, you, you don't need, like, why are we still learning the yeah. same lessons? The first one did perfectly fine. Hammond realized his folly. That should have been the end of the movie. Yeah. Why do we keep having to learn this lesson over and over again? Besides, you want to make money off this. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. There you can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, where each episode I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found at thesoundofcinema.podomatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. And be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies. (laughs) 